lot of fun stuff going on. God doing a lot of things in our church body uh, that only He can take the credit for, and that's exactly what we want as a church, is for God to be active and moving in our midst. We're not trying to build a church based on me or my ego or my personality or on the brand, but that we want to be true followers of Jesus Christ. And if you are kind of wanting to know what that looks like, you could go check out last week's sermon on the website and get a little bit better picture of that as we're moving in a little bit different direction of, as a church as we had been moving in the past. But I don't know about you, anyone, maybe you don't have to raise your hand, but does anyone, anyone on a tight budget, we're on, you know, we're on a kind of a tight budget in our family, and we, we work hard to, to stretch our money as far as we can, to use our money as best we can, to, to not waste a lot of money on things that we don't need, you know, and so in our family, we, we just can't afford to waste money on certain things, and I don't know if you've ever said that, if you've ever express that sentiment, but maybe you have. We just can't afford to waste money on blank right now, right? I mean, so, you know, and somebody says, well, you should really do this, or you really need this, or this would really benefit you, but you would say, no, we just, we just can't afford to waste money on that right now. Maybe for you, it's going out to eat or going to the movies. There's this new movie you got to go check out. Well, we just can't afford to waste money on going to the movies right now. You know, we just can't afford to waste money on buying the kids new clothes right now. We just can't afford to waste money on these things. You know, they're not necessities. Kids don't need new clothes. Right? But what we really need is food. You know, we need to eat. We need, we need a roof over our heads. Those are, those are probably the, the bare necessities of life. We need to be able to eat and sleep indoors. We need gas for our vehicles so we can get to and from work and we can get to and from the movies and we don't have money to buy tickets to the movies. And, you know, we need, we need, we need cell phones, right? That's a really important thing. You can't live without your cell phone. That's a need in our culture. We, you know, we need, we need the internet and we need Netflix. We can't go without Netflix. You know, that's a real, real urgent, pressing need that we have. I bet a lot of us have said, though, that we can't live with I can't live without Netflix. But I'm not, that's not what I'm talking about. Don't worry. <laughs> you, we can go home and binge, binge watch uh, stuff this afternoon with a clean conscience. But we're on, you know, we're, we're on a pretty tight budget, and we can't afford this right now. But I don't know if this has ever happened to you. You know, we're on a tight budget really can't afford anything outside our budget right now. But then the Grizzly catalog comes in the mail. And if you don't know what that is, that is a tool catalog. It's got a lot of woodworking tools in it. And it's like, all of a sudden, I need a lot of tools, right? It's like, I didn't have the money. I don't have the money for anything, but I have these needs now that, that I really didn't realize that I had before, but I need a new table saw. You know, it's not a want. It's not something that I just desire, but it's a need, you know, or, or I, need, I need a new lathe that, that has more speeds on it than my lathe has, or, you know, I need, I need some of these tools that are in here because mine are, you know, mine are just kind of consumer tools, and I need, I need the professional-grade tools, right? And so all of a sudden, I couldn't afford to waste money on things, but now I have these needs. And I know I'm not the only one. Probably some of us guys have the same thing when we go into Harbor Freight or when we go into Home Depot. I know Harbor Freight is junk, but still they have a lot of fun stuff that I'd like to have in there, right? I mean, it's cool stuff. 
Or maybe, maybe you feel the same way when you see someone driving a Tesla down the freeway. It's like, man, I need one of those. It's not a want. It's a need. And just in case you thought I wasn't going to offend the ladies in the room, I'm, um, we're also going to talk about this, that, that there are probably some ladies that, that, are, uh, that are guilty of, it's on sale, right? I mean, it's on, it's on clearance. It's on the clearance rack, and, and I need... I've been waiting for this new sweater, or I've been waiting for this new pair of jeans, not to mention the 12 that are in the closet that never get worn, but I need a new pair of jeans, and it's on sale, and well, you know, I don't want to waste money, right? It's like, I, I can't, I'd be wasting money to not buy this thing right now, and so I just, I need it right now. And we say to ourselves, well, I can, always, I can always just turn around and sell it on eBay for a profit. You know, it's, it's, I can, I, if I don't end up using it, then I can, I can make money off of it because, I mean, look how cheap it is, and I need it. But we didn't have the money, and all of a sudden we have this need, and now we're finding ways to squeeze money out of the money that we don't have, and so our children really don't get the new clothes that they need, and we can't get enough gas to get to work. Uh, someone just texted in, for us, it's what the grandkids need. Yeah, what the grandkids need. The grandkids need some sugar, right? We can't send them home without sugaring them up, right? That's not, that's not how grandparents work. <laughs> Needs, needs and wants, and it's interesting, right? Because we, we knew we couldn't afford it, but now all of a sudden... We need it. Well, what changed? What changed? Did the truth change? Did, did our budget change? Maybe, maybe you're one in a, in a billion and you won the lottery, and so the truth literally changed for you. But, but for 99.9999% of us, the truth has not changed. We still have the same money that we're working with. Our budget has not changed, but something changed. How did we go from not being able to afford kids for our clothes, and now we can afford a new table saw, or what changed? Well, this is just kind of a fun little example that, that I think we, we fall prey to commonly quite a bit in our, in our society, myself included. I have fallen prey to that. I do that quite regularly, and God has to convict me of my sin and bring me back. But um, Yeah, somebody says, the cure is to shrink your house size. Living in 800 feet will shift your perspective. 800 square feet, yeah. So, um, but truth does not change, right? And that is part of what we need to talk about in this, culture, in this uh, sermon series that we're going through. In our culture, the, the truth seems to be a shifting target, a moving target. And if you've been here any period of time, you've heard me talk about this, that, that truth does not change. If something is true, it's always true, no matter what, no matter what the circumstances are. And, and there's this verse that we're basing the title for our series on that says, did God really say, and this comes out of Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? 
And we've spent a great deal of time talking about that phrase, did God really say? And how Satan will use just that one question, did God really say, to throw us off track in every and any area of our lives. And when we went through the last series of Continually Devoted, we talked about having the right foundation and how the church is built on the foundation of the apostles with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone and how we are described now as living stones, a part of the church, the temple that God is building in which he dwells in. And and we talked about our foundation and we used this verse, which I think is also good to bring back up here as we look at this series as well from Matthew chapter 7. It says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. And we drew this illustration, this simple picture of a house. And and emphasized the foundation of the house. And we said it's the foundation, not the decoration that counts. It's the foundation that the house is built on that's going to make all the difference in our lives. And when you look at this passage, it's easy to kind of focus on the storm and get, and get caught up in the storm. But the storm isn't the, isn't the key player. The foundation is the key player in the story that Jesus is telling because the foundation is what brings about the change. And the foundation are the people who hears Jesus' words and puts them into practice or who hear Jesus' words and not put them into practice, and that's the house built on the sand. So, so when storms come and blow against the house, I don't know if anyone is remembering any of this, what they do is they test and reveal our foundation. So it's the foundation that makes all of the difference. Well, what happens with, our, with the way that we live in the world and in our society today is that the lies that we believe actually crack our foundation. And so we drew... Some, some cracks in here because of the lies that we believe, and, and they're making us susceptible to storms. And so the storms, as they come, they're testing and revealing the, the integrity of our foundation, and, and these lies that we believe are cracking our foundation. And what we need to do is address some of these lies and deal with the lies that we're believing so that we can be built on the rock of Jesus Christ. And so keep that image in mind as we go through this morning as well as this series. Been wrestling a lot with how to put this series together, and today I'm going to focus all on identifying lies. I, I want us to, if I think if nothing else happens throughout this series, if we can learn how to identify lies in our lives, then we're going to be on the right track and we can see ways that we're being deceived. And one of the key ways that we are being deceived is by our feelings and our culture that tells us to determine and base everything based on our feelings. But we're supposed to trust God, right? So so how do we find it? Well, we need to trust God, not our feelings. Many of us in this life, many of us when we are in walking through the, the week, Monday through Friday, Monday through Saturday outside of here, we're driven by feelings. 
We're, we're driven by, by the way we feel in certain situations and circumstances, and depending on what's going on, our walk with God is affected or changed. Outside of that, we, we, we decide almost everything we believe based on how it makes us feel. And I've kind of harped on this, and this is one of my soapboxes, drives me absolutely insane, but it's this phrase, my truth. My truth. Well, well my truth is this, or my truth is that. In fact, I went out and found some, some quotes for you uh, so, that, so that we can, you know, talk about truth. I have to learn how to speak my truth, right? That's a phrase. Well, here's, here's the first one. It says, I am my truth. I live my integrity. And these are actual things I just pulled right off the internet, the people have, that have made pictures and want you to share. I live my integrity in all I do, and then as though we don't really believe in our truth, we have to repeat the phrase, I live my integrity in all I do. Here's another one. Speak your truth, even if your voice shakes. You speak, not the truth, but your truth. Speak your the reason your voice might be shaking might be because you know your truth isn't really the truth. And so, um, you know, speak your truth even if your voice shakes. And maybe the more your voice shakes, the more lies you believe. But here's another one. Today, today I speak my truth without being attached to what others do with it. You can kind of see the direction we're going, and that's actually the direction our culture is going. I'm going to speak my truth Regardless of what others do with it, regardless of how it makes others feel, I am, here's the next one, I am not afraid of my truth anymore. I will not admit pieces of me to make you feel more comfortable. Love me for who I am or not at all. Decide if you're a part of my future or part of my history. I am who I am. Man, there's so much truth in that. <laughs> He said sarcastically. And the last one. I choose, this one is great. I choose to pursue a life that feels good to me. Authenticity shines through all that I do because I am living true to my truth. I know who I am, and I honor what I know while honoring others who do not see what I see. I am grateful for my truth, and that's what matters most to me. Living true to my truth, that phrase, and pursue a life that feels good to me. What happens when your truth changes? So you were living true to my truth at one point in time, and then my truth changes somewhere along the way, and then so I'm living true to my truth at this point in time, but it conflicts with the truth that I believe back at this point in time, and now those people that I offended with my truth back in here aren't as offended by the truth that I believe here. So now what happens when my truth changes? Who am I living my truth for? What is my truth? Actually, I don't know if you should go look this up, but on the Urban Dictionary, they have a definition for my truth. This is great. It says, my truth is uh, a pretentious substitute for non-negotiable personal opinion. <laughs> That's what my truth means. It's often used by academics, and this is a convenient phrase for avoiding arguments because people can contradict your opinion, but not your truth. And the phrase is often used when seeking to justify a controversial personal stance or action because people are not allowed to argue with your truth. Here's an example. Gertrude says, I'm leaving my husband. 
He's a really good, faithful guy and all, but I just don't love him anymore. It was a tough decision, but I have to stand in my truth. And Sharon says, you are so brave. I'm so proud of you for being true to yourself. Stay strong, sister. How many of you have heard that phrase, my truth, at some point in the last couple of months? Has you heard that come up? Yeah, it's, it's all over the place. People are talking about my truth. Truth is really important, but we have to ask ourselves, if we're going to base our lives on the truth, then how do we figure out what's true? How do we figure out what truth is? I mean, our world is having all of these crucial, critical conversations right now, and we're not basing them on actual legitimate truth anymore. We're basing them on feelings and how people feel, but we're calling it truth because we feel so strongly about it. And right now we're having conversations about marriage, creation, sexuality, greed, gender confusion, racism, and success, all in our culture, and we're all trying to decipher between the truths and the half-truths and the lies that are being proclaimed out there from the rooftops of every different organization. How do we figure out what's true? Well, I have some some things. Maybe these are steps. I don't know if this is a perfect system. You know, it's based on God's Word, so I think we can figure out some things from it. But the first thing I think we have to do is step one. Here's your first step. If you have your notes that we passed out just a few minutes ago that Jim and uh, Shauna passed out, thank you for doing that. You can write these down. Step one is we have to understand that the world is discipling us for their own purposes. One of the lies that we believe is that the world is, is amoral, that the world is just kind of this amoral institution, that, right, that, that it, a, amoral means without morals. So, so we think that the world is amoral. It's not really trying to or to move us in a, in a way of our thinking, and we think that the world is just kind of, the, and it's the people in the world, and there is a little bit to that. But, but what the Bible teaches is that the world, as, as we define it as a, a way of thinking that is opposed to God, is not just amoral, it is immoral. So it's not without morals, it means that it's opposed to morals. And you can see this in our culture all over the place. There's, there's fierce opposition to anybody who tries to oppose morals onto your life, right? We're, our world is opposed to morals. We're not opposed to our own morals, but we're opposed to anyone else's morals. But the world, as we are going to learn here in just a second, is actually full of sinful desires. Romans chapter 1, there's a lot here We don't have enough time to cover it, but I want to read through it and just kind of paint the context for the world being immoral. Romans 1, verse 18, and we're not going to read all the verses here, but it says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Suppress the truth by their immorality. Now, don't hear that I'm saying, oh, we just need to live more moral lives and we just need to be work harder to be living out the Ten Commandments. That's not what I'm talking about. But the world is full of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. It says, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities 
His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So it is possible to see these equalities of God's eternal power and His divine nature by looking and observing the world around us so we really are without excuse for believing in God. Verse 21 says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over and the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Then it says, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Does that kind of sound like our world that we live in? Not only do we do the things, but we approve, and, and as we're seeing, become more and more blatant about doing them in public view so that others have to deal with them in our personal truth. The world is opposed to God, and our world is full of lies and half-truths. There's a lot of things, a lot of examples I'd like to give you, but I, I just don't have time to get into. I might share with, some, with you some of them this week on Workplace. But it's not just full of lives, it's full of half-truths, half truths that sound like they're true, but they're only half-true or partially true. And of course, if something is only partially true, it's not really true. But our world is full of these things, and, and there are many blatant lies, blatant lies that are attacking our lives and affecting our daily lives. And there are many, if not more, half-truths that we've believed that are affecting us too. Now, if you twist the truth to fit an agenda and mix it up with emotions, you have a very powerful manipulation device. Right? If you twist the truth and if you put little bits of truth and you put it in, make it fit your agenda, and you mix it up with some emotions and feelings and you stir people's feelings based on your half-truths, you have a very powerful manipulation device, and this is how the world functions. This is how news organizations work. This is how a lot of movies work. This is how political parties do the same thing, and even documentaries, right, which, which claim to be speaking the truth, but they have an agenda, and they're defending their agenda. And so we have part-truths or half-truths, but it's not the whole truth. But I don't know if you've ever been, I've watched documentaries, and as I'm watching this documentary, I find myself so stirred up and so passionate. I need to go do this. I need to, I need to be a part of this cause, and I don't realize that I've been taken advantage of. The world is discipling us. The world is teaching us. And the world has spent a lot of money figuring out how to do this best. The world is discipling us. Now, this foundation is, is very important. And there's something I, I want to maybe illustrate if we can. 
that the world is discipling us, the world is teaching us, and this is one of the things that, that the world is teaching us. We have to be true to you, right? Be true to you. You have to be true to you. You can't be anyone that, who you aren't, and so you have to be true to yourself. And, and the, way that we, the, the way that we become true to ourselves is by going inside ourselves and figuring out who we really are on the inside. Who are you? What makes you you? And you have to be true to that. Go figure it out. Go figure out who you are, and then you go inside yourself. And then we have to ask ourselves this question, how do I feel? How does this make me feel? And a lot of us right now are probably struggling with that because this feels like an attack, and I'm not trying to attack you, I promise. I'm just trying to help us all see. And in the end, this is what happens, is that truth surrenders. Oops. To feelings. That's the big one right there. Truth surrenders to feelings. By being true to you, then whatever is real truth, wherever real truth comes from and exists, well, that real truth has to surrender to my feelings about what I feel is true, and that is more important. And so, so this is how the world is working, is be true to yourself and go inside yourself, figure out who you are, figure out what it is. By the way, there's a book I'm going to share with us this, uh, this week that's kind of helping me in my preparation on this. And so we have to ask ourselves, how do I feel? How do, how do I feel? How are you feeling right now? You might be feeling off or wrong. And the world would say, well, tr the truth needs to surrender to your feelings, so it really is my truth. And my truth is just based on how I feel. And it can't be wrong if it feels so right. Right? It can't be wrong if it feels so right. It can't be. How can it possibly be wrong if it feels so right? I don't know about you, but has anyone, you know, participated in something wrong and it felt right in the moment that you were doing it, right? I mean, all we have to do is look at, at the weight loss industry in, in our world and see that, that there's a lot of things that, that, that feel right that we shouldn't be doing, right? Like, I know that if I want to lose weight and if I want to get in shape, then I have to eat fewer calories, I have to eat healthier food, I have to exercise more, and, and all of those things, I have to have a healthy lifestyle, but that's hard to do when eating cookies feels so right, right? Like when, when you've got a big slice of apple pie and you are like pumpkin pie because Thanksgiving's about here and that is God's glorious gift to all of mankind, this pumpkin pie and you coat the whole thing in whipped cream, you know what I'm talking about? Like, like if you don't have half of the can of, of, of not, not the spray kind, not the homemade kind, you all can just go and be on your high horse somewhere else. But like... The, the hydrogenated oil, the cool lip, right? Yeah, and you put that out and you cover it and you just smear it and it's just, it is just, I mean, this, this is probably what they give you when you first come into heaven in God's presence. It's, I'm sure. And how can, I mean, how could it be wrong when it feels so right, right? I mean, Nothing feels as right as pumpkin pie. Of course, I know not all of you agree with me, and that's okay. It's okay for you to be wrong. That's important. 
We need to establish some truths, some eternal truths as we go through this series. Can't be wrong if it feels so right. Truth surrenders to our feelings. So the first thing is we have to understand that the world is discipling us for their own purposes. The world has an agenda when it's coming at us day in and day out. The world is not amoral, it is immoral, and it has an agenda, and it's driving it at us all the time, okay? That's step one. Step two is we need a source for truth. We need a source for truth. We are not the source for truth. Our feelings are not the source for truth. We need a source for truth. We have to have somewhere where we can go to find the real truth. We're not the source for truth. In fact, what we are the source of are these things which we see in Scripture. We are the source of selfish ambition and vain conceit. James chapter 3, verse 13 through 16 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. About as clear as I can make it. We are not the source for our truth. If we're the source for our truth, this is what it's going to look like. It's going to look like selfish ambition. And this is what the wisdom of the world looks like. And this is what the world is, is touting and proclaiming as wisdom and how to be wise. It's also vain conceit. This is what we are full of. This is what is in our hearts. This is what the Bible teaches us that the, the Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. And our Philippians Bible study on Tuesday nights, we've been going through this, and one of the things that stood out was that idea of selfish ambition and vain conceit is the idea of promoting yourself as though you're running for office. And so what he's saying is we can't do anything out of that self-promotion as though we are trying to push ourselves above others so that we are the ones that are elected and in charge. He says, don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. So the world is telling us to go there and to think there and to do that, but, but what God is saying, no, don't do anything out of that. Those are the entirely wrong, backwards motives. So we need a source for truth. What is our source for truth? First, our source for truth is not just the Word of God and, and the words that come out of there, but our source for truth is Jesus who is the truth. And we need to understand that Jesus is the perfect embodiment of God's truth. And so when he was living, breathing, and walking on this planet, he was perfectly exhibiting what it means to live in God's truth. And so while truth can be expressed in words and phrases, it is really a life that is lived. And if we are going to be in the truth, our lives have to reflect Jesus in the way that he lived, lived his life. And the only way to do that is surrendering to him. John chapter 14, verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, 
If you really know me, you'll know my Father as well. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is saying that he is the embodiment of the truth of the Father. And when we've seen Jesus Christ, we have seen the Father because the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father, and they are all in perfect unity with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So we have to counter the world's wisdom with the wisdom of Jesus. What, is, what would Jesus say? How did Jesus live his life? Well, instead of being true to you, Jesus was true to the Creator, his Father. We're not true to ourselves, we're true to our Father. And Jesus would say, instead of going inside yourself to find the truth, you actually have to go outside yourself. In fact, he would say that you actually have to pour yourself out, follow my example, and live your lives as a daily sacrifice. So we don't go inside ourselves to find the truth. We go outside ourselves and we look at Jesus. And, and instead of saying, how do I feel, and asking ourselves this question, how does this make me feel, we ask the question, what does God say? And lastly, Instead of our truth surrendering to feelings, our feelings then surrender to the truth. I'm not saying to get rid of our feelings. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. But our feelings need to surrender to the truth. So we need a source for truth, and Jesus is that source for the truth. Truth is not just knowledge and information. This is something I've really sought to explain, that, that, that it's not just things that we know. It's not just information and intellect and intellectual assent that gets us to God, but it's actually the person of God. It is the person of Christ that is the truth. Words lead us in the direction, but the true word, the living word, was Jesus Christ himself, and that is our example of the truth. He is our source for the truth, and all Scripture points to him as the truth. So we need to have, uh, we have to understand that the world is discipling us. That's step one. The world is discipling us for their own purposes. Step two, we need a source for truth. Step three, we need to be on the lookout for lies that are affecting our lives. We need to be on the lookout for lies that are affecting our lives. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the truth. I'm going to say that over and over again. We're going to read some more Scripture. John chapter 8, verse 31. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. 
How can you say that we shall be set free? Isn't it interesting how we rewrite history because Abraham's descendants were, in fact, slaves for quite a big amount of time? It's a huge part of the Old Testament story, but they themselves, I guess, had never been slaves, so they thought. How can you say that we need to be set free? And Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So, the truth will set you free, and if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. So, here we are, one and the same thing. It is the son who is the truth that is setting us free. So, Jesus is the truth. This is how we need to start thinking about the truth. Jesus is the truth. This is our third step that that we need to be on the lookout for how lies are affecting our lives. And then we need to understand this. Anyone, uh, what was that movie, Um, if you can can remember it from this quote, says that the the greatest trick that the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. Usual suspects. Isn't it amazing how the main actor in that, in that movie was living by huge lies? Kevin Spacey. The greatest trick the, ever, the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. Satan is the lie. John chapter 8, verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? This is why it's not just trapped up in words caught up in words. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. Why are they unable to hear what Jesus is saying? Well, verse 44, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. That's what we're talking about. The beginning, all the way back at the beginning in Genesis chapter 3 where it says, did God really say he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If, I am, if I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason that you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Satan is a murderer, a liar, a cheater, and a manipulator. That is his native tongue. Those are his native actions, and that is how he works in this world. And one of the biggest proofs for me, I was uh, talking with Colin, that, that you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. You've been buried with him through baptism and raised to new life in Christ. One of the greatest proofs that you are in Christ is that, that you are hearing and understanding God's truths and it makes sense to you. And as we come into the truth, the truth starts to look more real to us than anything around us. And we start to see and observe with our physical eyes how the world has lived its entire existence opposed to God, and it is full and saturated with lies. And the only truth is something that is more real than what we can see with our physical eyes. So the way to know the truth, truth is to know 
the person who is the truth. We don't know the truth by just learning facts. We know the truth by knowing Jesus. All right, so, so how do we know where the lies are? How can we start to discover some of the lies? How can we find the lies that we believe? Well, we've been talking about this for quite some time, about being good trees and how every good tree bears good fruit. Matthew chapter 7, verse 17, Jesus says, Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. So then what is the fruit? That's usually where we go. That's the question that we ask. And the fruit, the, the, the most basic fruit that we can understand is Galatians 5.22 that says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And so do we see that fruit in our lives? Are our lives or areas of our lives producing this fruit? And are there parts of our lives and areas of our lives that are not being fruitful? But instead of, like we tend to do, focusing on the fruit and getting distracted by the fruit and just looking and trying to force fruit, trying to force ourselves to be loving, trying to force ourselves to be joyful, trying to force ourselves to be peaceful and patient and kind and good and gentle and faithful and self-controlled and all of that stuff so that we can look and have the appearance of fruitful lives, which is only the appearance, an external appearance of something that has not actually happened internally. Instead of doing that, what we need to do is we need to focus on the root and that we are rooted and grounded in the love of God. Are, are we planted in God's love? Or are we planted in our selfish ambition and vain conceit? Are we planted in God's love? Are we rooted down deep in God's love? Or are we planted in the ways of the world and the desires of this world? Where, where is our root? And if our, if our roots are planted down in these things, then it will show in the fruit or the lack of fruit. So we need to focus on our roots. Where are we rooted Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 through 8 says, So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith you were taught, overflowing with thankfulness, but see to it that no one takes you captive to hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Can it be any clearer than that? We need to be very careful about what is deceiving us with hollow and deceptive philosophies, the hollow and deceptive, the empty philosophies of this world that we, are, that we have bought into hook, line, and sinker and make sure that we are built on and rooted up in Christ. But I think we can use the fruit to see areas where we might actually be believing lies. 
Are there areas of our lives that are unfruitful? If there's not areas of our lives that are showing the fruit of the Spirit in us, then that's something I think we need to pay attention to. And instead of seeing it as something that we need to condemn ourselves about for not being fruitful in this area, what it should be is, okay, I need to let God search me and know my heart, try me, look, look in my inmost being and see if there's anything in my heart that is saying that it is not of God in this part of my life. And if there's something not of God in this part of my life, we believed a lie. And what God wants to do is come in and pull up that lie by the roots and replace it with his truth so that our lives are built on the truth. So when we're not seeing fruit, we need to look at the root. What are we rooted in? What is that area of our life rooted in? And our families, is our family rooted on Christ, or is it rooted on performance and other things? And in our jobs, and in our workplace persona that we put on? Is, is, our, is our work life rooted on Christ, or is it rooted on our own ability to perform and achieve certain standards? In our marriages, are we rooted and built up on Christ, or are we built up on our own ideas of what marriage should be, and we're trying to force the others in the marriage to meet our idea of what we think marriage should be, and because of that, neither of us are happy because we're trying to make the other one what the other one can't possibly be because we're not rooted on truth. We're rooted in a lie. We need to start looking out for the lies and where we don't see fruit. I think there's probably a lie that's keeping us from producing fruit. Have you ever stopped to think about the lies that we've believed? Have we looked to see what lies we're believing? Lastly, and quickly to address this idea of what we do with our feelings. Should we just ignore all our feelings and try to live lives devoid of emotion? No, absolutely not. God created us this way. He created us to love Him with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. We are not supposed to just be emotionless, mentally ascended beings. So we can't just ignore our feelings, and in fact, large sects of Christianity throughout our history have tried to do just that because there is an assumption that all, all feelings are bad, but that's not the focus of Scripture. God made us with feelings, and so there must be an intent, a divine intent for our feelings and our emotions. So if I'm prone to being led astray by my feelings, shouldn't I just ignore them? Well, no, absolutely not. We should not. What does it have to do with then? It has to do with what we do here every single Sunday when we're gathered together. It has to do with our lives that we lead outside of here. It has to do with worship. We need to worship God with all of our feelings. Not just, not just with our physical voices, not just with our minds, right? Not just with our thinking, but, but with our feeling, because it says to love the Lord your God with all of your heart. And the first one that he mentioned was heart, and the heart is by far the largest theme throughout Scripture that we're supposed to love God with, and so we have to pay special attention to it. If we're supposed to love God with all of our heart, then what does that mean? Well, we need to focus all of our feelings on worshiping God. 
And we need to make Him the focus of our feelings, not ourselves and our own affections and our own desires and our own wants, not making everything about us and trying to get everything and everyone in the world to think about us, but we need to focus all of our feelings, all of our hearts, all of our affections, all of our desires, all of our longings, all of those things that are in our hearts on worshiping God. Why? Because whatever consumes our attention and our affection is what we worship. And most of us are consumed with ourselves. Our focus is on ourselves, and so all of our feelings are about ourselves, and so we don't even have the concept of what it means to really worship God with all of our heart. And that's because it comes down to this word that we hate. It comes down to this word that we just, it just reviles us. Is worship is submitting to God, not forcing God to submit to our human feelings. Worship is submission to God. It is, it is whole life submission to God. And so when we're living sacrifices, we are literally living worship. And we're living worship as we sacrifice and submit to God and not make God all about ourselves and trying to get God to do what we want and, and trying to get God to go where we want Him to go. But we are submitting to God in every area and every realm of our lives. And, and we just say, God, you are God and I am not. You are the one who brings the victory. I cannot be victorious on my own. You give me the victory in Christ. You are what makes me more than a conqueror. You are what gives me the gift of, of life and joy and peace and hope and love and goodness and all of these things that is all found in you because that is who you are and the only way for me to become that is to focus all of my attention on you because you are that and I am not. So I submit. I submit. I, I as we talked about a while ago, I assume the position of submission. You are God I am not. We bow our hearts. We, we submit our hearts. We, we have to sacrifice and surrender our position that we think we are entitled to so that we can receive the position of sonship that God wants to give us. Are we worshiping God with all our heart? I'm going to ask the worship team to come. We're going to have an opportunity to put this into practice. And I would encourage you to be intentional in this practice we have. Maybe you felt in the past God leading you and pushing you and prompting you to respond to Him in certain ways during times of worship, and it's outside your comfort zone. And we don't go there and we don't do that because it's outside our comfort zone, and that's just not who I am, which is a lie we believed. So we don't do it. I don't know if you know this about me. I used to be a worship pastor and a worship leader, but I'm not a naturally a hand raiser. 
It's not natural for me to, to raise my hands and lift my hands in worship. I'm, I'm, not just, I'm not just drawn that way like some may be. But I do it because I want to be submissive to my Creator. And I want, I want Him to be the one that is the focus. And, and if that means that I need to even deny my own personal comfort in moments of worship, then that I'm going to do that so that my focus is not on what I'm getting from God, but what I'm giving to God. And this isn't comfortable for me. This isn't normal for me. This isn't how I live my life. But, but I'm willing to submit. I'm willing to surrender. I'm willing to let you be God because I am not God. And so I do this. I don't just do it because I, it feels good to me, but I do this. I raise my hands or I, or I kneel down before my Lord, my God, and my Maker, and I humble myself. I, I, but I'm not just doing it for the attention. I, I'm not just doing it so that I look spiritual, but I'm looking at it because in my heart I want to submit to God. And if I need to physically submit, then that prompts me to do it in my heart, then I'll do it. And so maybe that's the step that some of us need to take, is we need to actually just surrender to God and, and, and worship God, submit ourselves to God, and follow Him in that way. Maybe some of us, when we take the communion here in a few minutes, it'll, it'll be just this visible reminder that it really isn't all about me, that the only way for me to know the truth is to live in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the truth. And I remember that because I, I follow him into his sacrifice on the cross, and as he sacrificed himself, then I also have to follow him into that sacrifice so that I can be adopted into the kingdom as a son or a daughter into the kingdom. And so when I take communion, I, I'm, I'm, I'm literally reminding myself, I I'm a sacrifice. It's not all about me. It's not all about what I want. It's not all about my feelings and my emotions and my desires and my wants and my things that I just have to have, but it's about Christ in my life and Him glorified and Him exalted up. And am I doing anything to lift up Christ in my life or am I doing everything to make more of myself? God, give us the prayer and the desire of John the Baptist who when he saw Jesus come, he said, he must become greater. I must become less. Let us be a church that exalts God. Let's stand together. Heavenly Father, as we come before you and as we worship together as one united body, unified in the Spirit of God, I pray that you would unite our hearts in worship, that you would give us the desire to humble ourselves right now in this moment, to surrender to your greater calling on our hearts and not give in to the feelings that we feel of, of insecurity and not wanting to do this because we don't know how we're going to look and what people will think, but that we just want to respond to you in worship because of the work that you've done in giving us a new heart. You have created in me a clean heart. You've given me a new heart, replaced my heart of stone, and given me a heart of flesh, and you have poured yourself out on me and filled me with your spirit so that I can live this life. I now respond to you in worship and surrender. Jesus' name.